I do remember points in my life, like briefly, where like when I would get upset, I wouldn't eat. As a child, that's how I dealt with stress. And that's how I asked for help. Because we don't think about like crying for help in that way. But actually, when you refuse to eat, it's some form of like seeking attention. I need help and I don't know how to ask for help. And I want you to know that I'm in pain. Sometimes our parents do things that we think are wrong, but they had no intention of hurting us. So how do I move forward? Like I have to forgive my dad. I have to forgive my mom. I have to realize that actually they didn't mean to hurt me. Your perspective of something isn't the same perspective that your mom or your dad would have. The reason we forgive them and the reason we can't be angry with them is because they're also learning and we forget that. My journey towards self-love has always been a difficult one. Just when I think I have conquered it, years, sometimes months later, new cracks begin to show. You're listening to Unsween and Unfilter, the podcast, episode 26 of season 3. If these words sound a bit familiar to you, that is because they were written by the poet Esma al-Badawi, who also happens to be today's special guest. Esma's poems are known for their rawness and their unfiltered truth when it comes to covering subjects such as mental health, racism, and many other personal life struggles. I do want to give a trigger warning. This episode primarily focuses on eating disorders. If you feel the content discussed could be triggering, please either proceed with caution or feel free to listen to any one of our previous episodes. On this podcast, we have covered ED before in our first season. But in sharing Esma's story today, you'll realize that when it comes to being Muslim and having this specific struggle, there is no one experience. Adding the layer of being Muslim can make ED that much more difficult to face due to how little this is talked about in our community at times, how it can impact an individual's ability to practice their faith, and how they can feel overwhelmed when Ramadan approaches. To express my deepest gratitude in having Esma share her story would truly be an understatement. This conversation can be difficult to have due to the fact that this is an ongoing fight for Esma and many others who are going through this. In this conversation, Esma discusses how society has played a role in how she views herself physically and how these feelings were internalized ever since she was a little girl. It's no surprise that society is obsessed with a woman's body image, but it's the harmful ways that some of us choose to cope with not feeling good enough that happens behind closed doors. Esma also shares that the idea of control, or lack thereof, is another component as to why she experiences bouts with ED. And so she also shares with us her relationship with her faith, her family, and herself through this process, and how we can do better as a community when it comes to being there for our loved ones who may be struggling with ED as well. Let's dive in. Thank you so much, Asma, for joining me in this conversation. Honestly, it's such an honor to have you on here. We're going to talk about the struggles of eating disorders and your own personal bouts with it as well. Oftentimes, we feel like our Muslim community might be immune to it, but obviously, we know better than that. We know that we're not immune to such things. And I feel like this is a conversation that is needed to be able to kind of help those around us, family, friends, loved ones, whoever it may be, who might be struggling with this. And how can we better support them? So before we dive into all of that, can you please just briefly introduce yourself and then we can get right into it. Sure. So, assalamu alaikum and thanks so much for having me on. My name is Esmail Bedawi and I was born in Sudan and raised in England. I'm a spoken word poet and I'm also a sports inclusivity activist and consultant, but I have a background in photography, video and digital imaging and visual arts. And I think that going to art school for that many years allowed me to see so many different perspectives, but also a lot of my work was around sociology and psychology and kind of translating the different issues that we see in our day-to-day -day life into images, poetry, or videos. I absolutely love that. That's just so beautiful. And I love following you on Instagram, Michelle. You're very multifaceted and it's so interesting to just follow you on your journey. And once in a while, you do also share what you've been going through when it comes to ED, our society's obsession with body image. You and I talked about this offline, like all of us have an aunt or two who must be on some diet and she's telling us her diet. And it's like something that's kind of like ingrained in us when we were younger, like to always be on a, on a diet, to always be fit, to always be thin. But you know, when it comes to body image, it's not always 
about how we look in the physical sense. Body image is very complex in the sense that it's also made up of beliefs, thoughts, perceptions, feelings, behaviors, everything. It's so all encompassing. But can we talk about how you grew up in a community that from an early age told you that there's a certain image that you have to attain? I'm the youngest of two and I only have an older brother. And so I think that growing up in my own immediate family, we didn't discuss body images. Um, My mom, she wears a niqab and she's never really wore makeup. I've never seen her wear anything apart from kuhun. So we didn't have this idea of like what is beautiful and what isn't beautiful within my actual home. But Throughout the years, I started noticing like, you know, when I went to a wedding or I was visiting Sudan that like everyone kind of said one particular woman was beautiful. And it was always like, oh, look at her hair. She looks like she's got really nice, straight, long hair. And then it's like her skin is glowing because she's a lot light skinned. And I, I started to kind of like almost take that in, but not knowing that I was taking that in. And at the same time, I was also like becoming like unconsciously aware the ideal beauty poster girl type of thing. I think because I played sport, it took me longer for it to affect me because for the longest, my body was there to help me become a better athlete, to train, to push my limits and boundaries as someone who plays sports. So I never really thought about it in that way. And I think I was lucky because the sport that I actually played, which was basketball and netball, they didn't really tell us, okay, you need to eat this much and you need to be at this weight. And it's not like sports where you have to make weight to actually perform or, you know, compete. But throughout the years, I did feel like I was starting to look at myself differently. Every time I looked in the mirror, I was kind of like conscious of my nose, my lip size and these kind of things. But I think what added to it was the fact that like I grew up in a very white area. And then when we moved from there, I was suddenly in a community that you know, a lot of them actually look like me. They're from Pakistan or Bangladesh. But then suddenly they were calling me, you know, the N-word. I was being called like slave in Arabic and things. And it was very confusing. And I suddenly felt like I was the other. And that's why when I said like body image, it's not just more so just like the physical sense. It's also how others perceive us and how we begin to also perceive ourselves internally and externally. You know, it's honestly very detrimental to kind of grow up in various communities. It's not always just one community, just various communities where you're trying to fit in. And then they show you like the benchmark of what the ideal beautiful woman looks like. And you're always comparing yourself to her. And it it's honestly, it's just a harsh reality. I think a lot of us grew up with that reality, but add in the color of your skin, add in the racism that you also had to face. How detrimental is this that when women are being critiqued from head to toe, inside and out, how did that personally affect you? I think it's so problematic because you start paying attention to things that you don't really need to be so concerned about. If my hair is, you know, curly, how is that really going to affect my like intelligence, you know? it's really not affecting it in any way. So am I going to sit at home and kind of like feel really horrible about myself or am I going to go out into the world and sort of like get the degree that I want, stand on the stage and speak and perform and and say what I want to say or am I going to let this drag me down? But I think that society as a whole concentrates so much on the outside of what a woman looks like and not enough on the inside. And even when we do sort of move away from that, it's still... You know, like we're not 100% there in terms of representation. For example, if you're going to put someone on a magazine that wears hijab, a lot of times they do go for the lighter skinned ones or they go for someone who still appears more Caucasian. I personally felt like I didn't experience a lot of that, but I've been in conversations where Muslim women who are, are darker than me do complain about these things and they're things that I was completely unaware of until these girls kind of voice their concerns and like struggles with that. You know, when you were speaking, I couldn't help but to think of the idea of insecurities and how they come about and how they come to exist. And what I find so interesting is that like, we don't know that we have certain insecurities until somebody points out a flaw of ours, quote unquote. And then all of a sudden we transform it into a insecurity of ours. So that's something that I feel like a lot of us have struggled with. If you have a public social media page, or if you're just going from one event to the next and you're meeting family, friends, strangers, whoever it is. And sometimes you're in this public setting and people can easily just point out certain and things about you that you never noticed about yourself. And then all of a sudden, like I said, it becomes an insecurity. How have insecurities affected you and your personal life? How have insecurities played a role, I guess? I think for me, it was in the like playground that I started to kind of realize I wasn't like everyone else. 
And it was like younger people from different communities that were kind of pointing out things about me, like my nose, the size of my lips, these kind of things. And as much as I could, I tried to not allow these things to affect me. I know that one of the reasons I did wear hijab initially was to actually cover my curly hair because I felt like if I wear hijab, you can't see if my hair is curly or not underneath. That was kind of one of the things I could control. Like I couldn't change my nose or my lips. I, I'm too young, you know, I'm like a nine, 10 year old child. So I'm not going to be able to change those things, but I can wear something that covers my hair. And then I think throughout the years, um, I started like, you know, straightening my hair or doing these kind of things that kind of just erase the fact that I was black in a way. And it wasn't until I went to Sudan and started seeing these messages kind of relayed back to me again, but this time from my own community over and over again. This idea of like, our skin needs to be lighter. So a lot of family relatives that I know were, you know, buying the fair and lovely, they were going into pharmacies and buying like under-counter creams that, you know, they were not re regulated in any way. And then I found that really disturbing. You know, the fact that like my own people were trying to change how they looked and their skin color. And they were friends of my mom who like literally got their nose done and this kind of stuff. So it was really, really strange for me. And I think it wasn't until I was at university and that I had a, a bad reaction to the chemical straightener to my hair where it all fell out that I suddenly realized, oh, wait, this is why. I feel the way that I feel about my body and my hair. And the hairdresser literally, all she said was, why did you do this? And I ended up doing a project about what it meant to be Sudanese, what it meant to be a person of color. So then I realized it was the advertising and the different messages that we were kind of shown every single day. Because one of the things that I realized that while I was studying photography and video is that we see a lot of images. We see so many to the point that we stop seeing them and we become so unconscious of ourselves seeing them. And when you see a woman who is lighter skinned, who, you know, the society deems more pretty than you over and over and over and over again, you get to a point where you can't look at yourself in the mirror. So I ended up literally doing this project for like the next year and exploring why we feel like this about ourselves, the sort of impact of the empires, you know, then I was able to accept myself. SubhanAllah, like, I mean, there, there has to be just an uncomfortable, a horrible way to kind of bring up a child in this world. I'm not saying your family, I'm just saying society and how we teach young people, specifically young women, instead of loving themselves into adulthood, we teach them to hate themselves until they become the version that society deems to be beautiful. And I'm, I'm glad that you're talking about this. I'm glad that you're bringing this up as the backdrop of, as to what you've struggled with personally when it comes to ED. And we're going to get into that. And we're going to get into the reason why ED became a part of your life. It was something more so to do with control. Because yes, as a young child, sometimes we don't feel like we're in control of certain things because society already paved the way for what is beautiful, what is not beautiful, what is right, what is wrong and everything like that. So it's almost like the path has been paid for you, but not necessarily for you. It's telling you that this is how you should look like. Like, and you either try to look like this or you're always going to feel like you're the outlier and you're not part of community's beauty standards. Can we talk about ED and how it came about and how did you realize that this was an eating disorder and not just, you know, just part of your lifestyle and this is what you choose to eat. This is how you choose to live your life. Like, how are you able to tell that this was an actual struggle? So it actually took me a very long time to actually realize it was an eating disorder when I first went to university, I remember I was a healthy 65 kg. I was playing sports all the time. I didn't really skip meals. I didn't really care for that kind of stuff, you know? And then it wasn't until like, there'll be times while I was at uni where like my friends would pull me to the side, you know, we'd be at a girls only party kind of thing. And they'd literally pull me to the side and ask me, are you okay? Like I always used to be like, I'm fine. And they're like, you've lost a lot of weight. And I couldn't see the weight drop off. I felt like I was fine and I felt like to a certain extent like I was skinny and beautiful. I, I didn't see the problem, you know. So that kind of happened a good like four or five times where I would suddenly lose so much weight and then suddenly gain a lot of weight and be back to normal. And, but throughout the whole time I was playing, so I was playing basketball. So it didn't feel like 
I was struggling in any way because I wasn't struggling in my basketball. I didn't feel like I was struggling in life or in terms of my health. So it wasn't until I would say about three or four years ago where suddenly I realized there was a pattern and the pattern was basically something would have been going on in my life outside of the things that I can control. I do remember points in my life, like briefly, where like when I would get upset, I wouldn't eat. And my mom would literally be like, Dad, you have to eat. You know, and I'd be like, no, I'm not eating, no, I'm eating. It wasn't a red flag to me at the time. But now looking back, as a child, that's how I dealt with stress. And that's how I asked for help. Because we don't think about like crying for help in that way. But actually, when you refuse to eat, it's some form of like seeking attention. But it's not the kind of attention where it's like, oh, look at me, you know, it's I need help and I don't know how to ask for help. And I want you to know that I'm in pain. So it took me a lot of time in terms of months and months and months of therapy and different kinds of therapy, because I felt like I had to go all the way back to my childhood and sort of unravel a lot of the different things that happened in my life for me to be able to kind of build a relationship with food again. And one of the things that became very apparent as well during that whole time was one, I feel like my food changes with my hormones. My appetite is kind of better at times where, you know, my hormones are a lot more stable in the month and then they're a complete mess other times. And having that connection made me be able to prepare, you know, so now I know like, okay, this week, I'm not going to be able to eat the way that I would be eating the last three weeks. So I'm going to prepare like smaller meals or I'm going to buy things that I wouldn't normally eat, like fish fingers or whatever that I just kind of like shove in the oven type things. Whereas before it just felt like everything is like this up in the air and like life was controlling me. I wasn't controlling my life. Yeah. I think the other thing that came very apparent was that like, I didn't really have a great relationship with food in the sense that because I felt as a woman, there were so many things that I was expected to do, like go into the kitchen, cook. Like I'm supposed to be the person who looks after entire family, you know, the husband, the kids, you know, if relatives or friends come over, I'm the one who's meant to cook for them. And I felt like that was way too much pressure. And at the same time, I felt like I didn't want to become part of that stereotype. So I avoided the kitchen. Like when I tell you I avoided it, like my mom would literally be like, please, please just come and learn one thing. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> literally, my mom's like, who's going to make all this food when I'm gone? I'm like, okay, let's not talk about that. And I'm like, don't worry, there's Google. <laughs> like right now, I just don't want to deal with that either. Yeah, so what I actually ended up doing is realizing that and kind of changing the way that I view cooking to help me eat better. So it's a life skill. You know, if we taught girls that this is a life skill, not this is the thing that you have to do in order for you to be a good wife, for you to be an eligible woman, you know, it would change so much because then food wouldn't be about other people. It's about you and what it can do for you. And it took me months, not even months, like to be honest, like years of therapy and, and conversations. And I, I definitely want to get into that, you know, the healing journey of it all. You know, you mentioned like control and everything. And I guess like maybe everybody's situation is different. Everybody's struggle with ED is different. But for you, it was a way to kind of attain control. And I think a lot of times we do feel like we don't have a sense of control because sometimes eating disorder also comes and, and it's triggered from like certain traumas in your life. And we don't have to get into that. But do you feel like sometimes there's also this like underlying like shame or guilt or self-loathing when it comes to having an eating disorder? Or do you feel like for you, it was mostly just no, this was like at least my only way of having control? You know, like, I'm going to be like really honest. I feel like for me, there was a lot of shame and guilt and other emotions that I was feeling. I didn't realize it until I went to therapy, like, and it wasn't until I had a Muslim therapist that I was able to kind of break down a lot of the thoughts and the ideas and the shame and the guilt about different things that have happened in my life. I went to almost in girls school and everything was shameful. If you played sport and you were jumping up and down in front of men, that was shameful. Like we were wearing hijab in an all-female environment with no man. 
in a sports hall playing sport covered. It didn't align with Islam. It didn't make sense. Like we're all girls. We should be able to take our hijab off in a space where there's no men. But there was shame attached to this thing, you know. And even like I remember the times where like I'd lift my sleeve up and my teachers would completely go crazy. And it was the language that they used a lot as well. It was so like harsh. It was always like, you're not a good Muslim. You're not this, you're not that. And I, and I feel like when you teach Islam in that way, everything becomes haram and everything becomes shameful and everything becomes like you feel guilty about things that are not even like that big of a deal, you know? There was also times in my life as well where I didn't process certain things. When I was around 16, my mom got really unwell and she had to leave. So when she left, I was kind of alone for a lot of the time. By then I'd gone to a new school. I didn't really know how to sort of, I didn't know how to speak up for myself because I'd already been taught previously in the schools that I went to that like teachers were always right. And you shouldn't really advocate for yourself because the outcome is always going to be the same. You're going to be in detention, <laughs> you know, whether you're right or wrong or whatever. And I think that's why I'm so much louder now in my beliefs. And when I see something that's wrong, I tend to speak out a lot more now than I did then. So during that time, I felt very alone. I felt like my mom did a lot of the stuff that when I look back at it, like she was on the, who cooked for me. She was on that, you know, made sure that I had my money for the week for school and these kind of things. And I think like, I didn't realize like she was away for like eight months. And that was probably the first time that I lost so much weight in my whole entire life. And I remember when she came back and she was like shocked. She was like, Asma, what happened to you? Where's my child? You know? And I remember her turning around and like looking at my dad and she was like, what have you done to her? And he was doing his thing. He was working. He was making sure we had a roof on our head. But at the time, I just felt so neglected. That was one of the things that came up in therapy. And I remember having this conversation and we kind of realized that that was the biggest route. You know, that that was the moment that I had developed an eating disorder. And that was the moment that I soothed myself and cried for help for the first time by not eating. My dad at the time just didn't. No, like he didn't do those things. It wasn't in his habit to make sure that I had you know, my money for the week. And, and, and I was angry. I was angry for with him for a very long time. And the reason I'm sharing this is not to be like, oh, my dad was a horrible dad or my mom left me or anything. It's to, to share that sometimes our parents do things that we think are wrong, but they had no intention of hurting us. I had to come to terms with that. I had to sit with my therapist and kind of be like, okay, that's where it started. And obviously I've had to suffer like at different occasions throughout my life after that. So how do I move forward? Like I have to forgive my dad. I have to forgive my mom. I have to realize that actually they didn't mean to hurt me. And I think my therapist did like an amazing thing by saying to me, for example, like your perspective of something isn't the same perspective that your mom or your dad would have. The reason we forgive them and the reason we can't be angry with them is because they're also learning. And we forget that. Coming to terms with that and having a really deep conversation with my mom about, mom, I don't know if I can survive in this world without you in it. And I remember she cried and I cried and she told me things that I didn't know she was going through, you know, or her fears or things that she'd put in place for myself and my brother. And she was like, you have your safety nets. Yeah, getting a bit emotional. <laughs> oh, I know. It's it's yeah. hard to talk about parents sometimes. Of course, an ongoing relationship that we're always trying our best to do our best to also be forgiving towards our parents because I think a lot of times we allow ourselves to have forgiveness and, and to be pardoned for the things that we've done. But sometimes I don't think like, at least for me personally, like I don't extend that that same grace towards my parents because I feel like I grew up thinking that they should be perfect. They should know best. Like they're my parents. But again, like being a parent isn't something that you're prepared for. Sometimes it just happens when you have a family. Now you have to provide for this family. You're in a foreign country and everything. So there's a lot on their plate. And sometimes I think we often just like hyper-focus only on our plate and what's in front of us. So that's something that I'm also in the season of, of just understanding why certain things have happened and why certain decisions have been made in the past and to allow myself to forgive my parents for that. And yeah, like you said, our parents have, our, have their own stories. They have their own major struggles that they keep behind closed doors because that's how they were raised.
bodies. They weren't raised with this idea of like how we are being raised with a society that will welcome you with open arms when you open up to, I don't know, the social media world about what you're going through. And it's it's a beautiful feeling to have strangers even support you and knowing that there are people out there that don't even know you that are willing to support you. Imagine our parents being here and not having that tool, not having family here or anything. So all they know is to keep their struggles behind closed doors. And I think that's why it's so important that like I want to have these conversations because for the generations to come and even our generation, I want that to not be our way of coping with things, to stay behind closed doors, to deal with things like that and to find sometimes harmful ways of crying out for help. We all have our own ways, our own devices. And for you, it was your eating disorder. So again, like it's it's so important to thank you for talking about this because it's something that you're still going through. It's something that you're still processing. I guess I kind of want to go into like the moment that you open up to your parents and to your family. How did that look like? Because this is not something that you could easily just say. And this is something that's like a, it's a true crisis. Like I have an eating disorder. How are your parents able to kind of manage that, especially since maybe this is something new to them and they don't know how to deal with something like this? I felt like my mom really wanted to be part of my healing. So I went through something like really big and my parents' reactions to that changed the way that I view them and the way I'll probably view them for the rest of my life. Like I didn't expect that reaction. I just remember like I was screaming because I, I was in so much distress that I didn't have the words to say what I needed to say. So my brain just shut down and I was just screaming. And I remember my mom and dad both coming into my room. And I remember my dad asking me, have you finished? And I said, no. And he was like, let it all out. As soon as I'd finished, like my mom asked me, like, what do you need? And I remember saying to her, I just need to sleep. And then her and my dad went downstairs. Bearing in mind, I'm like in my 20s. So it's not a thing like a 16-year-old, you know, (laughs) kind of like tantrum. It's like a grown woman screaming. The months after that, I remember like sleeping next to my mom every night. Like she would literally sleep with me. I would cry. My dad would hold me sometimes. My mom would hold me sometimes. And it went on for like, I would say like months. And then I got up to face the world again. I just found like that I'd found this new appreciation for both my parents. That's when I sort of started opening up a bit more about like the eating disorder and how, and then my mom became like, she would basically ask me what I wanted to eat. She'd ask about my favorite things. Sometimes she was cooking, sometimes my dad was cooking. They would like make sure that I was okay But I also had to have really big conversations with them. Like I might come downstairs to eat with you and my plate might not be finished. Don't ask me to eat more. I don't want this journey to be like a chore. And I can't feel like you're also controlling me because then we're going to be back in the same cycle of me trying to avoid control. And it wasn't until I would say like an actual conversation with my therapist. And it was like, you're never going to have control as a Muslim you're never ever gonna have control. You think you have control. You can build everything around you, create a huge foundation, you know, and everything and feel like, okay, I'm in control now. But you're never ever gonna be in control. So are you gonna live your life trying to control everything around you? Or are you going to give up the control to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And I feel like that was like another turning point for me. By then, I feel like I had my parents' support, I had my mother's support, and then it was this journey that I need to take now that was going to be between me and Allah. I think when we talk about eating disorders, that's the first thing everyone goes to. What's your relationship like, Allah? Oh, you're a bad person. That's why you're not eating properly. That's why you have mental health issues. That's why, you know, no, no, no. I did it the opposite, where it was breaking down the family background, the things that have gone wrong in terms of with me and my family, Well, the things that haven't even gone wrong is just my perspective and their perspective was different at the time. And then looking at all the different traumas that I've been through, because we all have traumas, like whether we want to, you know, label them as that or not. And then kind of trying to rediscover my relationship with food and and then going into the kitchen and doing and then and then it was, okay, you've done all the things that you can humanly possibly do and you're still struggling to a certain extent. So that means it's now about what do you give to Allah? How much control are you willing to give away? 
I truly appreciate you, Asma, for bringing up not only your relationship with your family, um, that's not something sometimes that's easy to talk about, but also just navigating your relationship with God when you are going through something like this. How were your conversations with Allah uh, during this time? If you don't mind, you know, sharing this, how, how was your faith in this time? Did you feel like your faith was strengthening or did you feel like you were kind of distancing yourself from God in a way because you were dealing with this? Sometimes when we do have these coping mechanisms, like I said earlier, they might be laced with shame so that we feel like so shameful that, that we can't face God. But it's it's amazing that you had this conversation with your therapist about the idea of loss of control. And we may have loss of control, but at the end of the day, who takes back the steering wheel and steers us in the right direction. It's always Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how was your relationship with God in those moments? I think I always had a relationship with Allah in the sense of there's things that I would have happily given away the control of, you know? I'm, I'm going to say everything that I'm going to say, but I mean it in the most respect ever towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I started realizing, for example, like, you know, in your friendships and your human relationships, you can have the friend that you don't trust with your money, but you trust them with your secrets. And you can have the friend that you trust with something else, but you wouldn't necessarily like, you know, tell them something about your family or whatever. With Allah, it's like you have to put everything on there. But as humans, we can't, we can't fathom the idea of like giving everything and the control away like that because we've done it so many times different ways to other people to our jobs you know and we've the trust has been broken there were times i would say where my relationship with allah was really strong and there was times where it was really really bad there was times where i had to literally do the ibadat that i could do because i couldn't do other ones and I think it made me realize that ibadat that I'm very good at and the ibadat that I'm really, really bad at. And I tried to do more of the ones that I was good at to make up for the ones I was bad at. <laughs> I struggled with salah the most out of all the ibadat. That one was the one that I felt like was the hardest for so many reasons. You know, one was like I wasn't even eating. So a lot of the times when I was in my really bad state, so I wasn't getting out of bed. I didn't really want to see anyone apart from my work that I did. I was basically non-existing, you know, like I didn't really hang out with my friends. I didn't do anything. And a lot of people don't really know the extent of how it feels to have an eating disorder. There were times where I was angry. I feel like, Ya Allah, why have you done this? But at times I also felt really, really grateful because I started having conversations with Allah that were, I wasn't insisting that he do things for me. I'd ask Allah to guide me in terms of my poetry and my art and my sport and this kind of stuff. And I found that he did and he took me in that right direction. And I know 100%, like the things that I asked for were so specific that no one in this world could have made them happen except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I wasn't insistent. So there was these glimpses. And I feel like those glimpses are the things that made me want to keep working at the relationship because there was hope and I, I saw hope within dua was the one that I, I wanted to start with the most when it came to fixing my relationship with Allah and then fixing my salah. Oh yeah, Allah, I'm so grateful. Like I have my mom and my dad and certain people in my life that like, they don't judge me for the bad points. They see that, okay, you've done all these amazing things and stuff like that. But at the same time, they also don't treat me like I'm not human. And so I'd start speaking to Allah in these kind of different ways. There was times where like I dragged my feet to Salah. Like I got to a point where I felt like I, I, I there's nowhere for me to go. I, I just needed to be on the prayer mat. And I'd just start my Salah and I'd be crying throughout the whole Salah. That was kind of the the start, I think, of building the relationship with Allah. You know, subhanAllah, like we're always like waiting for Allah to give us words of encouragement when we're going through the hardships. But I mean, of course, like you're you're not going to hear Allah's voice just every day giving you a pep talk before you wake up and start your day. But it's it's the fact that he blesses us with certain people in our lives, 
loved ones who are our words of encouragement, who he has placed in our life to continuously encourage us to keep moving forward, to try our best. Like, subhanAllah, like this is not an easy struggle to go through. And yet you had parents who, as much as they could, they understood what you were going through and wanted to be there for you and helped you as best as they could, as best as they can. So Allah is always speaking to us in every which way in our lives, from who he surrounds us with to the things that we go through and the things that we overcome at the end of the day. So that's why this is like a relationship that I'll always continuously work on my relationship with Allah. And I once said, like, if you're going to the prayer mat and you're releasing all your doubts and your worries and you're telling God everything that's been, you know, just painful and like really hurting your heart, make sure when you roll up your prayer mat and you walk away from that prayer mat, you don't walk away with these same doubts and worries because you left it up now to Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So thank you for sharing that because it's sometimes it's not easy to talk about our relationship with God. Um, I think it's a, it's a very intimate relationship, but I would also like to talk about, you know, your healing journey and how does the healing process look like to you? This is a quote that you shared on your Instagram and I thought it was so interesting. You're like, my journey towards self-love has always been a difficult one. Just when I think I've conquered it years, sometimes even months later, new cracks begin to show. So you're basically saying like, this is an ever evolving process. What is the one thing that you feel like you're struggling with the most through this journey? What is one thing that you feel like maybe somebody else might be struggling with, but how are you trying your best to overcome this part of your healing journey? You know, sometimes when it comes to our healing journey, it might feel like you're stepping forward into growth, or sometimes you, you may feel like you're stepping back into safety. It's it's one or the other. If you don't mind sharing your, you know, this part of your journey, and hopefully this can help other listeners who might know somebody that's struggling with ED, or they might be struggling with ED themselves, or maybe any other struggle. Every healing journey may be different, but we could still find similarities between all of our journeys. For me, I think the hardest thing to deal with was the loss of time. I had so many plans for my life, you know, in terms of playing sport. And then I had to stop. When I say stop, I mean, like, I can't play with other people. I couldn't be part of a team again because I wasn't keep, I wasn't keeping up. I was struggling. The last game that I played was like two years ago. And the reason I stopped was because I was seeing black. Like I was running on the court and everything in front of me kept going black and then going back to normal and then going black again. I've never experienced that before, you know, to that extent. And I felt like I can't play like this. I could have fainted on that court that day. And I I didn't, alhamdulillah. But I knew that was like, it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth it to to play a sport just because you love it so much. And I feel like I had to give it up. And I think that was the biggest and hardest thing for me to deal with. Also, like to feel like my body was not on my side. There's days where it's like a struggle, like a struggle because all my energy goes to sort of keeping me alive to a certain extent at times. My brain is not working. It's not functioning. Like there's weights that I absolutely know that I try to do my best to avoid ever reaching again. Because I know that like that weight, my brain function doesn't exist. And I think it's really important to kind of like take away the fact that eating disorders are not just, oh, she's gone thin. When you get to a certain point with your eating disorder, it's your brain basically kind of switches on you. And it starts telling things like, I don't want to be alive. Why are we here? And that's when it gets really, really, really difficult. And I think when people are in those spaces, they really, really need to show themselves love, find a safe space to speak in. The worst thing to do if you have an eating disorder or if you're in an unhealthy relationship or anything is to go speak to someone who's not safe because it causes more problems. So you need to go to a safe space, whether that's like counseling or whether that's a friend that you really trust or your mom or your dad or whatever, like find someone, talk to them. And even if you do find someone, also talk to Allah. And I think what helped me and what I have to keep reminding myself every single day is the Quran has examples of people who have gone through things similar to us. The story of Yusuf he was kind of taken away from his family. He spent seven years in jail. It's almost like if I relate to the idea of the time lost in my life, the things that I wanted to do, but what Allah gave him after that was like he couldn't have dreamt of. There's a specific ayah in the whole entire Surah Yusuf. Inna Rabbi latifun lima yasha' innahu huwa al-alimul khabir, I think. What it taught me, that specific verse, is no matter what you're going through in life, 
how you speak about Allah is very important and how you address Allah is very important because he went through all of that. And then when he came to describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he described him as Latif. And the Latif is literally like gentle. If you ask the human after they've been dragged, you know, <laughs> by their brothers, thrown into a well, lived in a jail for seven years, God knows what, and then ask them to describe, you know, the person who did this to them. Gentle is not the word you would come up with. But subhanAllah, when he put it in the context of Allah putting him through all of that, and then him coming out the other end, he described it as gentle. And for me, this verse, I literally cannot stop remembering it or thinking about it. And I feel like I res- it resonates so much with me. And then there's Ayyub alayhi salam, there's verses that he has in the Quran that I completely like resonate with. And he has a dua that he says, which is, Allahumma qad masani al-dur wa anta arhamur rahimin. And I absolutely love that. I absolutely love the Quran, by the way. Like, because I'm a poet, I feel like this is like some another level of linguistic, subhanAllah. And like, I can sit for days and days. And what I absolutely feel like when I sit and listen by myself, and, and I'm not Googling quotes, Islamic quotes, you discover your own verses that speak to you. So I would say that to the Muslim community, you know, build that relationship with Allah. I would say like 150% after you've done your healing and you've unpacked and everything, that relationship is the most important relationship you're ever going to have in your life. Those are some beautiful words, Asma. Thank you for sharing that. You've talked about your relationship with your family. You've talked about your relationship with God, subhanahu wa ta'ala. How has your relationship with yourself been? How has it changed over time? And do you feel like self-forgiveness plays a role in this for you? Because I think a lot of times, like, you know, we lock ourselves up in the pain and forgiving ourselves is honestly what truly sets us free. Like you've said, you've mentioned that, you know, certain trauma that you don't want to discuss, which is totally fine, has kind of triggered your eating disorder on top of other struggles that you've that you've gone through that that has triggered this to feel in control. How does forgiveness play a role in this for you? How has your relationship been with yourself? I think the relationship with myself, when I've made it about me, has been a very healthy relationship in the sense of when I was growing up and I did the things that I loved doing. I played sports. I did whatever. I didn't care what other people said. I didn't stop playing sports because somebody told me girls shouldn't jump. You know, I I stopped when my body couldn't. And alhamdulillah, I'm back in sport now. But it's like anytime I've done something because I enjoy it, it's been a whole different like kind of story for me. The moment that I start looking at what other people have or what other people have achieved or what other people think, that's when I've had an uncomfortable relationship with myself. Like I remember two specific occasions in my life where one, I remember going to an interview and I went without my makeup on and I remember one of the women hosts was like oh my god I would never do that wow. and then it became a thing I would never come on in front of the tv without my makeup and this and that and then now I don't go on tv without my makeup you know she could have just left me alone at that time and another occasion was like someone was doing my makeup and she was in the sort of like beauty industry and I don't have a lot of friends in that space not because there's anything wrong with them but because I don't like being exposed to that level of like detail, you know, and I remember she did my makeup and then she was literally like, oh my God, you have bags, let me cover your bags. And since then, I've never been able to unsee the bags that I never saw, you know, my whole entire life, I never saw the bags. It's like how we mentioned earlier, Asma, it's people that pinpoint our insecurities. We never even knew we had these insecurities or these deficiencies, quote unquote, until people point them out. It's 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 a struggle. It really is a struggle in itself to be able to kind of tune all those voices and opinions out. You know, I want to talk about like how can our community play a role in this? You know, how can we better approach individuals in our family or friend groups who may be struggling with ED? And maybe not telling them bluntly, I think you have an eating disorder, but how can we just have an open space, a safe space, um, sometimes of course not publicly, but just a safe space within our family and friends that we can discuss this with somebody, that we want to be there for them. And so how can we be there for them? What is the best way to be there for somebody that is going through an eating disorder? I think the first and foremost thing before all of that is how do we discuss food? 
in the sense of everyone needs to be aware of how they discuss food around other people, whether they think that person has the eating disorder or whether they don't. Because sitting there and being like, oh, I'm the regime, I can't eat that, or, or that's bad food, or Simnet, she's got fat now, and look at her, and this and that, and it's picking at somebody's body or someone else's body or your own body in front of other people is so unhealthy. What you're basically saying is that person's body is not right. And if you're sitting there with a plate because you've not ate for a whole day and suddenly you're eating and then someone walks in and they're like, oh my God, you're eating all that. Suddenly it's a problem. So it's the way we talk about food. Food and the our community is always discussed as a problem. <laughs> so it's kind of like bringing the fun back to eating in the sense of this is the food that we're going to eat. Uh, you're welcome to eat. If you don't want to eat, it's okay. You know, it's so you, you take away the shame and the guilt for not eating or for eating. Uh, I think that's one of the first and the biggest things like we need to do in our community. And then on top of that, like uh, create spaces where, for example, women are getting together to cook, to enjoy cooking uh, and to change the narrative around what a woman's role is because her role is not to feed everyone. Yes, of course. It needs to be for her to take care of herself and then she can take care of others. As women, people forget, you know, like we do so much out of love. So if I love you, I will cook for you, don't worry. So I would say that that's uh, another way. And especially for the younger girls, you know, whether it's a masjid or whatever, the girls getting together, they cook together. It's not about, okay, we're making health food. It's about, no, we're cooking together and this is a good thing to do. And then on top of that, and the last thing I'll say is to to provide those counselors in the masjid or in the community, community centers that are for Muslims that young people can go and speak to. And they're not spaces that are judgmental. They're spaces that understand the different layers of being Muslim. And not all shame is attached to something major, you know, like haram or something. Sometimes the shame is just, you know, for example, I don't pray all the time and I feel guilty because I don't. And I feel like because of that, I, don't, I can't go to Allah, you know, just little, little things that we we've learned throughout the years because you know, in our community, it's not build a relationship with Allah. It's, oh, this is haram, this is haram, this is haram. It's haram, you know? Of course. <laughs> so it's kind of having that. And I think that's what I would kind of say. And also, like, champion people who are already in those spaces. You know, like, one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things that helped me was the fact that my friend, who I also live with, this is her speciality like she's been doing this for x amount of years and she works and worked in hospitals she's been around patients at both ends you know uh, whether they have obesity or whether they have an disorder and she knows what both are triggered by because it's all the same sense of control it's all the same idea of how we perceive ourselves and beauty standards and that kind of thing and having people like her that we can talk to helps so much Honestly, like speaking, like she was one of the biggest, I would say, help in my life. But to kind of champion these kind of people and kind of welcome them more within our community and our masjid and that kind of thing. And even if that means we we bring in a person like her in the masjid once a month to speak to the girls, that's a good thing. Or even to the parents so they can better assess like if their child is going through something like this and, and if they are, how to have these conversations. Because Alhamdulillah, it was beautiful that your parents were able to kind of like give you the space to deal with this, but also welcome them on your journey or welcome them onto your journey. So that's very helpful. So I feel like, you know, professional help is super important. I can't stress this enough on the podcast, like any mental health struggle that you're going through or mental illness struggle that you're going through, professional help is the way to go. I hope that people are surrounded by loved ones who care for them that can notice if that they are going through something and give them the space that they need to be able to deal with the struggle but also like I said welcome them onto the journey with them so you can be there for your friends or your loved ones or whoever it is that that is struggling with whatever mental illness it could be or it could be the eating disorder that you discussed I really want to thank you Asma you know this was a conversation I've had before on the podcast in regards to eating disorders and I, I honestly just like I'm always in awe of the women that come on here and share their stories they're super vulnerable this isn't something that is easy to 
talk about. I know you shared it in posts, but it's just, it's a whole nother level of having a whole full conversation about this. But I genuinely hope that it impacts anybody else that might be listening to this, that might be struggling with this, might be struggling with something else. And just to know that, you know, inshallah, like you are welcomed with open arms by your community, by your loved ones, by your family and, and anyone else. Do you have any other final thoughts that you want to share to anyone that's possibly listening to this that, you know, is going through the same thing as you or has gone through this? A lot of the times these things get bigger and bigger and bigger because we don't have an outlet. So for me, the outlet was actually poetry. I couldn't write initially. And then I started writing and then I ended up writing at different parts of the journey until I felt like I was somewhat near the end of it. And in some ways, I kind of had to find a purpose in the sense of why do I want to get better um, and kind of focus on that. Is it that you want to be a better Muslim? You want to be able to go on hajj? You want to be able to like have the strength to do your ibadah? So I, I would say that, like find, find that outlet and own that outlet and don't be ashamed of that outlet. There's stuff that I've written in my poems, and when I put it out, like, I've had to say it's raw. My stories and the stories of other women and that kind of stuff that is just kind of jumbled up and kind of put into poems. So if that's what you're into, that that's great. If you're into photography, pick up a camera, you know, go outside into the street, take pictures of nature or whatever it is. Keep your mind busy. The less you think about food, the healthier your relationship with it would be. Yeah. To not be so hyper-focused on whatever it is that we're struggling with. So it doesn't become like our coping mechanism in a way. I just want to thank you, Asma. You know, I, I truly appreciate you for coming on here, for sharing your story with me, for opening up to me. It honestly means a lot to have you on here and, and to be able to converse about something that's very serious, that maybe a lot of our loved ones might be struggling with this behind closed doors and we don't even know. So I hope this conversation is very beneficial to the listeners. And I'm just excited to just continue, you know, peering onto your your journey, peering into your journey, even if it's through social media, but it's just always nice to be able to see Muslim women just thriving and succeeding. And inshallah, we can always just be there for one another. So once again, thank you so much, Asma, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And Zakulakha.